Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. I absolutely love Kind Bars, and I've eaten a lot of them. Let me tell you about the first time I ever had a Kind Bar. I was working at a steel foundry, and I only had a couple hours left to go, but I was tired and dirty and really starting to drag. So I saw some Kind Bars in our cafeteria, looked good, so I grabbed one, and it was delicious. And it gave me the little burst of energy I needed to get through the rest of my night without feeling bad about my late evening snack or heavy from a ton of refined sugar and artificial ingredients. And that's the big difference. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients and to empower the food snack community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Some of my favorites are the blueberry vanilla cashew, fruit and nut, dark chocolate cherry cashew, cranberry almond, and the dark chocolate nuts and sea salt. They're delicious. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that's why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% off or 15% off for military personnel, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Just go to podgo.co slash kind. That's podgo.co slash kind. Kind Bar, creating a kinder and healthier world, one act, one snack at a time. We got a, a decent heater out here in the quote unquote studio, our box to record in. And it says, my meat thermometer, that it's 130 degrees in here. Your meat thermometer that has shit it's got, on it. It's got <laughs> stuff on it. It's, it's okay. Okay. It's just hanging in the air to tell us how hot it is, which I think it's fucking hot as shit out here. One side of me is very warm. One side of me is very cold, like I I had said. Well, I had to move it over to one side so I had leg room so I don't burn myself. Yeah, I feel it more just right here. That's because it's, it's right here. Yeah, I know, but it's right here beside me to the left of me only. Just that's where the heat's coming. I feel Not to the right over. of me, just on the left. Okay. I'm hot. <laughs> you do usually run warm. I'm always hot. Yes, I'd rather, I'd much rather be cold than hot. Much rather be cold than hot. Because you're weird. You could always put on more layers. You can only take so many off before it's illegal. Not in your own home. Yeah, but still. I'm still sick. Yeah, but you're getting better. A little bit. You're yes. you're, you're good enough to come out here and record this. You weren't yes. last week. No, not at all. <laughs> not even close. All right, well, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. And it's our third episode, on third and final episode of Flannery O'Connor. The big crescendo, as they say. The end. Okay. Take all the panache out of everything. Well, I I may be feeling better, but I'm not, like, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, better. Fair enough. And I gotta save energy to make, you know, like, a hundred tamales. Okay. Well, 
on that note, uh, let's get back to it. So Flannery's life at Andalusia uh, now revolved around writing and religion, not necessarily in that order. Uh, every morning was prayer reading at 6 o'clock, then coffee, then mass at Sacred Heart with Regina at 7, and on Sundays, they went to the 715 mass saying, quote, I like to go to the early mass so I won't have to dress up, combining the seventh deadly sin with the Sunday obligation. Which is sloth? Yes. Okay. And having to go to church. Yeah. Yeah. So Flannery had her bed and workspace, just an old writer's desk and a typewriter, set up in her front room so she wouldn't have to go up and down the stairs. Hard to do with lupus. Yes. Her and Regina had an understanding that she would stay in the home. Regina wouldn't touch her writing equipment or bother her when she was working. It, it actually worked out pretty well. They they came to that compromise and Regina stuck to it, which kind of surprised. I wasn't so lucky. <laughs> uh, now, what she was beginning to write in the fall of 1952 was going to be her second novel, You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead, which I suppose is true. Uh, it featured a twisted little teenager named Frances Marion Tarwater. And she was also pumping out short stories like The River in November that had images of speckled skeletons and a preschooler named Harry that has a drowning baptism when he returns to the river where his reverend baptized him and he gave himself over to the undertow while his parents were hung over at home. Damn. Yeah, her mind kind of works the same way Bram Stoker's did. Just very unassuming until it starts writing, and then it's some of the most twisted shit you've ever seen in your life. I mean, I like the dark shit, but fuck. Uh, then there was A Good Man is Hard to Find, getting inspiration from news articles like a report on a bank robber they called The Misfit and a photograph of a little girl in a tutu. In it, a scene of an entire family's murder on an Atlanta road trip. Many thought it was the best story she had done yet, and Lowell equated it to Hemingway and Melville. So those are pretty big names to be throwing around. Yeah, to live up to. Yeah. Uh, she was no longer able to write the four hours in the morning and then spend the day with friends. Now, after about two, maybe three hours of writing, she was spent for the day. The lupus and cortisone had done her, done in her energy. Afternoons were filled by flu-like symptoms and mental fog. So since she couldn't write, she took up painting and raising more birds. If you ever see a picture of Flannery O'Connor, um, in her living room, she's sitting on a couch, and there's a big painting above her head, a self-portrait. She painted that. So a little insight to anybody who's ever looked up a picture of Flannery O'Connor. Now, with the birds, she now had pens of pheasants and quails, a flock of turkeys, Canada geese, Muscovy ducks, Japanese silky batnums, and Polish crested batnums. You don't fuck with Canada geeses. Canada geeses. Canada gooses. And, of course, the peacocks. To which a local repairman uh, remarked, quote, Never saw such long, ugly legs. I bet that rascal could outrun a bus. Peacocks are actually kind of dicks. So we used to have peacocks here at the zoo, the local zoo. They used to just, a couple of them used to just walk around. And they had to get rid of them because people would run up to them and rip out their tail feathers. Because, you know, if there's anything more of a dick than a peacock, it's a person. Yes. And apparently they used, so they could fly not very well and not very far. 
but like a turkey, they can like jump and kind of flutter up to something if they need to. So the people who are working at the zoo in the mornings doing rounds and stuff, clearing, you know, just doing whatever they need to do before they open the place, told me that uh, they'd just be walking by and all of a sudden they'd hear a loud noise and a peacock would kind of soar out of the tree at their head. Because peacocks are dicks. They are. Now, one day in April, a tall, young Danish man named Eric Lankayer, it's it's a Danish name, so it's L-A-N-G-K-J-A-E-R. Lang, Lankayer? Lankayer? I have no idea. Yeah, it's Danish, so half of those are pronounced wrong. Yeah, and you can't kind of German your way through it. No. That's what I like to do. I like to German my way through well, things. Well, no, because like a lot Just of... Just not Jewish people. I don't German my way through Jewish people. <sighs> I meant the language, because Danish and German are very different. I don't know if they're very different, but they're different enough. Yeah, because... Like with Austrian and German, you can kind of German your way through Austrian language. Just put a <laughs> in your voice every once in a while and you kind of get it. Yeah, yeah, and you can't do that with Danish. Okay. We're just going to call him Eric. Okay. With a K. Okay. Okay. Now he showed up at their door. He was an old college textbook salesman for her publisher, Harcourt Brace, and had been invited to the house by GSCW professor Helen Green. He wasn't sure why he would need to go meet a couple of strangers just because they had dealings with the same publisher, but he went anyway. After a short time, Flannery was taking him on a guided tour of Baldwin County in his car. Remember I said that there would be a, a Bible salesman? Mm-hmm. Not technically Bibles. They're old textbooks, but we'll get to the whole Bible thing here in a minute. Uh, Eric had been born in Shanghai to a Danish diplomat father and a Russian mother, so kind of all over the place. Well, that's probably why the the weird last name. Well, his, his dad's Danish, his mom's Russian. Yeah, so but it could be a combination of both. Well, no, he gets his last name from his dad. But he's born in Shanghai, so kind of all over the place. Now, his parents had a messy divorce, and he moved from Copenhagen to New York with his mother. He was now technically homeless, living in his car as he traveled the Southeast, selling textbooks from his, quote, Bible, or a folder full of books he sold that he carried around with him everywhere. That's why she called him a Bible salesman, because he had a Bible full of textbooks. No, a Bible is a collection of books. Technically. Now, they were so comfortable around one another from the start that they were both able to tell the other about personal information that they didn't normally tell people. Eric told her about his childhood in wartime Denmark, the divorce, and his father's, <laughs> his father's death, and she told him about her lupus and her father's death. However, she probably needed to talk about her condition to explain her very thinning hair and her bloated face, which Eric did rec- uh, notice. He, he makes a point of saying that her hair was thin, and she had a moon-shaped face. It was obviously bloated from the medicine. Not so much the, the hair loss, I guess, from the lupus, but the bloating more from the medicine. Remember how big my face got from the medicine? How fat it got? Like, no. from the swelling and shit? Not really. I do. I, looking at pictures, my face has thinned out so much more since I stopped taking certain medicines. I feel for her. Well, I mean... There's really no other option for her back then. 
I mean, you have. I guess there's different options now for symptoms, but back then, lupus, it was, you know, you just count down your days until you're gone. So they're doing whatever they can to make her more comfortable. And cortisone puffed up her face and made her hair, well, and her hair was falling out. I know, it did it to me too, because I had to get it for my my knees and my hips. Yeah, she was getting a lot more than you were, though. Yeah. She was getting four injections a day. Yeah, I, I couldn't. You got one injection every couple months yeah yeah but still it fucked with my hormone levels yeah, and it, so just, she she's she was getting bombarded yeah with cortisone. poor flannery but well you say poor flannery but after this meeting eric would rearrange his entire schedule and even travel more than 100 miles out of his way just to spend weekends at the farm with flannery now he wouldn't spend the nights there regina found that improper so he'd have to stay at the hotel down the road now, they would take long walk, go out for rides. Flannery would reserve an outside porch table at the Sanford house for lunch just for them. Unfortunately, Eric got to see an unsavory side of the area they lived in when, in honor of its sesquicentennial, the town had a week-long celebration of its antebellum glory days, oh, no. catering exclusively to the white population. They even printed... Oh, fucking two million dollars worth of confederate 20s so you know worthless money uh, men were ordered to grow out their facial hair and put it into certain designs women had to wear hoop skirts in fact a grocer and money lender named marion steam stembridge was put in stocks for refusing to grow out his beard so he shot two of the town's most prominent lawyers, one of whom prosecuted him for the murder of a black woman, which he did not do any jail time for. He then turned the gun on himself. Uh, this was the inspiration for the Partridge Festival, where a man kills five members of the Partridge City Council and then is sent to Quincy Asylum, it was printed in March 1961 in a Catholic journal called Critic, six years after the real-life story. That's fucked up. <clears throat> now, that May, Flannery started exchanging letters with Brainard, not Bernard, Brainard, and Francis Cheney, uh, friends of the Fitzgeralds and the Tates and Gordons. They visited her and Lucia home in June, She's going to get a lot of visitors over the years. All right, there's going to be a lot of them that I will not cover because they're not super important to her story. Well, to say they're not super important to her story, I guess, is kind of diminishing things. They're not super important to the story I'm telling, as in getting to the writing and getting to the things that inspired her to write and what she wrote. Plenty of people had meant a lot to her. But none of a lot of them that I saw didn't have enough to do with her as far as her writing went. So there's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to not talk about. Uh, re go read the book if you want to see them all, because again, this is just 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 the tip of the iceberg of people that come and see her. Uh, so I bring up the Cheneys though because she does get inspiration for them. She'll actually go and live with them for a little while, uh, off and on. So they seem important enough to bring up. Uh, in fact, just two months later, she would head to Smyrna, Tennessee, to the Cheney's home named Cold Chimneys. 
It would be somewhat of a retreat for Flannery, and they would be a nearby surrogate for the Fitzgeralds, who moved to Italy on a Guggenheim grant and stayed there for the next 11 years. Be nice if somebody paid you to go move to Italy. That would be nice. <laughs> All the pasta I could eat. Oh, Jesus Christ. As she got even closer to the Cheneys when they converted to Catholicism. While there, she read The River, which was just published in the Swanee Review, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which was just released in the Avon Book of Modern Writing, and The Life You Save from the Spring 1953 Kenyan Review, and A Late Encounter, which was in Harper's Bazaar. So she went down there and she did a lot of readings for people and stuff that she was getting more into anyway, if they could understand what she was saying. Yeah, that would make sense. Now, after returning from Tennessee, Flannery met a family of tenant farmers at Andalusia, the the Matisiaks. I even spelled it out phonetically, and I still fucked it up. They were a Polish displaced family. Uh, Jan, the father, Zofia, not Sophia, Zofia with a Z, the mother, 12-year-old Alfred, who was the translator for his parents, and his little sister, Hedwig. Aww. <laughs> she was not an owl. Well, obviously. Uh, they arrived from West Germany after spending six years as refugees after Jan was in a German labor farm as a POW. Luckily, Jan was a jack-of-all-trades and was able to fix almost anything, which made him useful at the camps in Germany and useful on the farm. Uh, this family would, of course, spark thoughts of new stories, but it wouldn't just be based on the family. She also used Eric's situation in the story. His sales trips and not having a home made him also a sort of a displaced person. The story called The Displaced Person, <laughs> featuring the Guizaks, a family of four with a mother that can only say ya ya. Uh, a 12-year-old translating son, Rudolph, and a younger sister, not Hedwig, but Sledgewig. <laughs> yeah, her creativity sounds like it's uh, going through well, the... Well, she, I mean, she just, she finds inspiration, she stays close to it. Yeah, but still, she was better at changing names yeah. previously. Uh, plus, it had Aster and Sulk, two black characters that were doppelgangers for Henry and Shot, two black farmhands on Andalusia. More people that they talk about at nauseum inside the book that I don't bring up because more people to talk about. Uh, she learned from her college days that she dare not try to speak from their point of view. Quote, I can only see them from the outside. So she never tried to kind of get into their head. She always tried to speak other people talking about them or around them. but. She didn't try to get into the head of a black person because she had no context, which is probably smart. Yeah. She had become even more opposed to the way black people in the South were treated and hoped that one day things would be different. Now, that December, she received in the mail, along with her Catholic worker subscription, a prayer card which featured a prayer to St. Raphael. She would put parts of that prayer in the displaced person to round out the story, eventually adding a climactic crucifixion scene with when Mr. Guizak is crushed under a tractor. That's sad. <laughs> I just thought of another book that has a black character as the main character. Who? The Help. Isn't Emma Stone's character the main character? Nope. It is in the movie. No, Abilene is. 
Okay. That's not a YA novel, though. We were talking about YA novels on Weekday Clip Notes. That's not a YA novel. That's just a mm-hmm. fiction. Kinda, because... It's not a YA novel. Yeah, it no, kind of is. It's yeah. Not. It's not. It's not a YA novel. None of the main characters are under the age of 18. It's, and, and even if one of them was, that doesn't mean that the whole story... Really, you just said that the main character isn't the Emma Stone character from the movie, which means it's not a YA novel. Okay, okay. Sorry. That just popped in my head. But, yes, you're right. The main characters in that are black. Yes. If you don't know what the fuck we're talking about, go listen to our We Take Cliff Notes uh, show, and you'll know. Now, near the end of 1953, Flannery was having a harder time walking, developing a limp from persistent hip pain, eventually having to use a cane. Quote, I walk like I have one foot in the gutter, but it's not an inconvenience, and I get out of doing great many things I don't want to do. (laughs) She's so smart. But I was like, what, 20 when I had to start walking with a walker in a wheelchair? 20? No. 20-something. I I was in my late 20s. You were in your... Mid to late 20s. Mid, or late mid-20s. Yeah, late mid-20s. That shit sucks. Yep. She's in the same boat you were in. She's young, had having to use a cane. It's going to get worse. Don't worry. If you're wondering... It's going to get worse. So it's okay. Now, in the spring of 1954, John Crow Ransom published her A Circle in the Fire in the Kenyon Review about a group of boys that release a bull, then they release a bull from its pen, and then they burn down the entire farm. It's based loosely off of Andalusia. She also put herself in the story as a 12-year-old girl named Sally Virginia with, quote, a large mouth full of silver bands. So, you know, her braces, braces that she had. <clears throat> At the same time, she was writing A Temple of the Holy Ghost, almost a companion piece. The protagonist, a 12-year-old girl challenged by adolescent sexuality, it was published in Harper's Bazaar in May. It, it's it's it, they kind of explain he kind of explains it more in the book but it gets kind of weird there's cousins and all they do is talk about boys and she's you know the 12 year old girl is for some reason kind of horny all the time and it's kind of weird for her to write about it because she doesn't really have any of that experience either so it yeah but i was gonna say why is she writing about sex again because she has no experience. She's not really writing about sex. She's writing about being, wanting to have sex and. Oh, okay. It's, yeah. It, yeah. I get it. She she knows she's coming to her end and she probably wants to experience it before she dies. She's like everybody else. I'm sure at some point she just gets horny. Well, yeah. I mean. Now, Eric wasn't the only one that changed plans in order for the two to spend more time together. On May 20th, when she should have been preparing for another trip to Cold Chimney, which she loved, she canceled the trip, telling them, quote, The weekend I planned to come to Nashville, a friend of mine who was on his way to Denmark to live elected to pay me a visit, and there was no way to stop him. Otherwise, I would have. Now, she loved going to Nashville to see her friends, but on this occasion, Eric had told her that he was indeed planning to go back to Europe for an extended visit over the summer and wanted for them to spend some last moments together before he left. Oh. Mm. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to do it. You think so? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. Usually I'm I'm good at picking out things, but yeah. the way you said that. They went for a drive on the countryside. 
looking at the red Georgia clay, which she loves so much. It is beautiful. You can say a lot of what you want about the South. I know you're not a huge fan, but it is beautiful. It is. It is. the, The topography is gorgeous. I mean, when you're driving through Alabama, it looks rather trashy, but Georgia's, uh, again, mo- the it, mountainside through Georgia is beautiful. It all depends on where you go. A lot of Georgia's beautiful, but you drive through a lot of parts of Atlanta, it, it kind of looks, it, it's just urban. It just looks trashy. No, I'm, the, the, <clears throat> where I've driven through, I've driven through, like, straight through Alabama, through um, interstates and highways and shit like that, and it's broken down just nasty yeah but i mean that, that's the type of thing that you gotta you kind of gotta go off of the interstates and the highways and, and go looking for the beauty there's you can find beauty in damn near every state you just gotta go sometimes you gotta go look for it yeah but the red george clay is gore it, it's it is my it, parents I've used to tell it. me that it's an old wives tale that it's it, the georgia clay is red because of all the blood of the confederate soldiers that died there that was an <laughs> old wives tale that they told anyway then My parents would be perfect southerners. That she, it was an old wives. She, we knew it wasn't true. She just said that's an old wives' tale. I know. I'm just saying your parents would make perfect southerners. They used to live in the south. They lived in Florida for a long time. Now, then Eric parked the car and decided to lean over and kiss her. Not that he was in love, but there was a type of feeling in the air. He was a man. She was a woman, and he was really wanting to kiss her. He suggested, so it wasn't just I lean over and, and, and kissed her. He asked her for, he, he suggested it, that he would like to kiss her. And even though she was surprised, she was definitely not against the idea. It was not a good kiss. <laughs> he, uh, she had virtually no experience, if any. And quote, as our lips touched, I had a feeling that her mouth lacked resilience, as if she had no real muscle tension in her mouth. A result being that my own lips touched her teeth rather than her lips, and this gave me an unhappy feeling of a sort of memento more, and and so the kissing stopped. So they didn't do it. I was not by any means a Don Juan, but in my late 20s I had kissed other girls and there had been this firm response, which was totally lacking in Flannery. So I had a feeling of kissing a skeleton, and in that sense... It was a shocking experience. Oh, poor Flannery. Forever a virgin. <clears throat> he knew she was mildly in love with him, and he cared about her, just not in that way. Then a couple walking down the road stopped by the car and poked their heads into the window to see what they were doing and quickly left, and Flannery found it, quote, rather enjoyable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So to answer your question, no, they didn't do it. It was one kiss on the tooth, and it wasn't fun. Wow. Poor thing. I bet she went home and wrote in her diary and said it was the best kiss she'd ever experienced. Uh, I can't remember if it says if she wrote in her diary or not, but I, it might have been the best kiss she ever experienced, because I don't know if she ever had any before that. It didn't seem like it. Because all the dates that you want, you know, quote unquote, that she went on before, it was just friends walking and talking, going to a movie, stuff like that. So this might have been the only time she was kissed, which is sad. Poor girl. Now, event- Eric eventually returned to Copenhagen, while- and while in Europe, he began a love affair with a woman named Meta Jules, which he did not tell Flannery about. 
they sent letters and postcards back and forth, Flannery's being more tender and loving than Eric's. Then in October, when Flannery was hoping for his return, he told her that he planned on staying longer to take American literature courses. She was less than happy, but continued to write. Eric's responses were coming fewer and further in between. Why do you need to stay in Copenhagen to take an American literature course? Yeah, Shouldn't you come back to America for that? You can take those courses anywhere. You know what? But he is a Danish citizen, so he probably got to take those courses for free because more socialized countries have free education for citizens. Yes. We don't. So there's a good chance that that's why. I guess that's probably why he did it. But why didn't he have the balls to tell her the truth? Uh, I just don't think he wanted to hurt her because he knew that she was in love with him. Rip off the band-aid. Fuck. No. She's already... He'll get to it. Now, about the same time, Regina had told her that she had been out cow shopping. And when she stopped to ask for directions, she was told, quote, Well, you go into this town. You can't miss it because it's the only house in town with an artificial blank in front of it. Blank I use for, you know, that one word I refuse to say. So she decided to write a story about that. An artificial... mm, Are those black jockey silhouette hitching posts? You know, you've seen out in the country, there's the black jockey like leaning up against a tree or or a a light post or something. It's just the silhouette, completely black like a handout. You can hitch something onto it. That's what they called them. Artificial... Mm. N-words. Yeah. So the story is about Mr. Head guiding his 10-year-old nephew, Nelson, through an Atlanta straight out of Dante's Inferno. John Crow Ransom wanted to publish it, but was worried about insulting the black community. Go figure. Uh, She responded back to Ransom, quote, The story as a whole is much more damning to the white folks' sensibility than to the blacks. So, the title, The Artificial... Mm. Stuck. I don't. I don't think she understands the damage she's doing. I, again, this is late fifties, early sixties. She's in the South. This is just kind of. It's as far as they see it. Is it's exceptional. It's acceptable vernacular. Yeah, I understand that it's acceptable vernacular obviously it wouldn't fly today she i get the sense that she's trying to rebel against the white people's stance in the south but she's also not rebelling against how the vernacular which is what she should be doing okay so that's something we're going to get to here in, in a little bit so hold on to that thought okay i'll try okay you'll rem- remember when we come to it so That title stuck, but the story itself didn't, and she rewrote it twice that fall. Uh, It was published in the Kenyon Review in the spring of 1955. It was the favorite thing she had written to that point. Robert Garreau had convinced her to start putting together a collection of stories under the title of his favorite story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. She let the Fitzgeralds know that she was dedicating it to them because, quote, You are all my adopted kin. And if I dedicated it to any of my blood kin, they would think they had to go into hiding. Non-stories about original sin, with my compliments. Her family didn't like her writing. Of course not. 
because they were, you know, good Catholic people and they didn't think she, they, she, a good Catholic girl should be writing there's about no all such this. thing. Yes, as a there, good yes, Catholic. There, there are plenty Fuck of, there's that. plenty of Catholics out there who were live perfectly fine lives. You could say the same thing about any Christian. <laughs> there are other. No there is no such thing as a good Christian. Sure, there are. There's plenty of good Christian people. Even out the there. Bible says that. There's plenty of good Christian people out there. There's just not near as many of them as there are Christians. Good Christians are a minority in the uh, lexicon of actu- of people who call themselves Christians. You say so. You can say the same thing about literally any race, creed, religion, sex, anything. There's always there's always a good one somewhere. It's just most people are shit. Okay. Okay. So nine stories about. Then she wrote a tenth. Good country people was written in about four days, the fastest she ever produced an entire story. About divorced farm owner Mrs. Hopewell, her thirty-two-year-old daughter with a wooden leg, and her tenant, her tenant Mrs. Freeman. Oh, and Manly Pointer. A Bible salesman that tricks the daughter, Joy, out of her leg in a joke of a hayloft seduction. Who do you think that's based on? Eric. She said she was shocked by it when it happened, and she only knew it was going to happen about ten lines before she wrote it. And obviously it was, yeah, a nod to, to Eric, the, ca- the character of Manly Pointer being a fake Bible salesman. His hollowed-out tomb contains not books to sell, but condoms, porn playing cards, and a flask of whiskey. <clears throat> Even though she told him that he was only a passing inspiration for the character, it's obvious that it was him and Joy was Flannery. Uh, Carolyn Gordon said it, that it was a masterpiece and Garo fit it into the collection. So she she's passive-aggressively uh, being very angry about the situation about the fact that he won't come home to to the south, the fact that he is reluctant to write her, and but when he asks her about, he's like, "What the fuck?" She's like, "No, no, no, no. If you think this is you, then you need to get this out of, out of your mind now. This, it's not you." But it's he knows. Obvious. Everybody knows. Obviously, it's but if it. he would have ripped off the bandaid in the first place, it may not have happened. Well, in April, he finally told her that he was engaged to Meta and that they would be returning to America. Flannery was, to say, upset. Uh, somebody later on, after she passes, asks Regina how she handled the whole situation. And Regina's like, it was, it was pretty bad for a while. She was, she was a heartbroken young woman for a, for a long while. Yeah, and it would have been easier if he would have just told her that they were told her when he was dating her instead of being like oh i'm engaged now by the way yeah well and on top of that she was finally coming to the realization that she would never have a true love that returned her feelings jesus she saw that as kind of her last chance at something before the lupus took over (coughs) fucking idiot well they kept in touch but they actually never saw each other again after that so they wrote back and forth every once in a while, but they never ran back. They they never went and saw one another, which probably would have been too hard anyway. 
especially on her. He broke her fucking heart. Yeah, God not on not on bag. him. Not on him. On her. Yeah. Now May thirty first, she was on TV for the first time. And you see Flannery O'Connor just. It. Can you imagine yourself being on TV? No, I mean I wasn't when I was a kid when they did uh, local news stories about school and shit. Yeah, for the she was on the New York Times Sunday Book Review reviews galley proof as their very first guest so it's just you and the um interviewer on camera on nationwide tv <sighs> yeah she was a little nervous uh and and very short with answers she was given just one word answers uh, she did eventually loosen up after a bit uh, however, she what she did refuse to tell people what happens in one of her books. Instead, telling the host that she couldn't paraphrase her story, and they would just they would need to just go read it. That's probably something I would do. Yeah, it's like would would you like to tell everybody uh, the the plot of this story? No, sir, I would not. I cannot paraphrase a story like that. They'll just need to go read it. Makes sense. Like, why would I give you the information for free? Go buy the book. I mean, you can give a synopsis of it to get people more interested, but... You want to know what my book's about? Falling asleep. (laughs) That's all you get. Okay. Now, she was accompanied to New York by Catherine Carver, who her new editor, since Robert Garreau had left Harcourt Brace, to be the VP at Farrar Strauss... Farrar Strauss... And Cuddy. Now, we mentioned Farrar, Strauss, and Grudeau in last week's weekday cliff notes. It was one of the publishers for one of the books we did. So Cuddy gets kind of pushed out later on, and Garreau becomes a head publisher for them. Cool. Later. Now, when she returned to Georgia, it turned out that the TV appearance did wonders for her career. Uh, There was a story about her on the front page of the Herald Tribune book review. The New York Times ran a review claiming her to be a, quote, high rank among our most talented young writers. Carolyn Gordon ran in the Times book review of the, quote, artful brevity of a master, and it helped so much that Harcourt had to order a second printing of A Good Man, eventually going through three printings over that summer and being a finalist for the 1956 National Book Award. So, you know, good for her. Finally, congratulations! Yes, even though you're you're slowly dying, you're finally getting the recognition that you probably you deserve, and uh, that you probably just don't care about, because she just wants to write. She doesn't care if people actually, you know, buy it. Now, in July, she started receiving letters from a young woman named Betty Hester, who lived in Atlanta. Betty could see that their stories in A Good Man weren't about sex, but about God. And Flannery was excited that someone saw her work for what it was. They quickly formed a sisterly bond, and this would be an important relationship to Flannery for most of the rest of her life. They had many things in common, both shy, southern, unmarried, and living with a widowed family relative. Flannery with her mother, Betty with her aunt. Uh, They wrote hundreds of letters back and forth, Flannery later identifying Betty as A to protect her privacy. The only real difference is Betty wasn't a Catholic. She was closer to an agnostic. By October, walking was getting even harder. A softening of the top of the femur 
was making her unsteady on her feet and in a fairly large amount of pain. So, she now had to use crutches to get around to help take the weight off the joint, hoping that the bone will harden again. I can imagine that cortisone is probably helping to soften that bone up. And if not, she would need a wheelchair or surgery, but with her lupus, surgery was all but out of the question. She also switched to metacortin, a prednisone pill. So stop with the injections and start taking prednisone. God, that's going to make her gain weight. Uh, she never really gains weight. She she puts it all up in her like she's always fairly thin. She carries most of her weight in her face, and it, it's she's she has a receding chin, so she got the fat face and the chin's like way back. So she looks like one of the larger Bob's Burgers characters. <laughs> it's it's mean, but it's she, it is, and then it kind of fucks with her teeth because her jaw's kind of back. So it makes her top teeth look like they kind of jet out a little bit. Because you see pictures of her when she's really young. She's actually very pretty. But when she gets a little older, the weight in her face, the receding chin, she she's not pretty anymore. That's it, it gets bad. Sucks, but it's kind of how it is. Now, soon she started on her second novel, You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead, about a 14-year-old backwoods boy fighting the call to be an Old Testament-style prophet in the contemporary South. She also worked on a talk that she was going to give the next year in Lansing, Lansing, Michigan, called The Freak in Modern Fiction. The work on the novel was daunting. She felt it to be more like homework. She liked the short stories better. And by the winter, she was also working on Greenleaf, about a scrub bull let loose from his pen by the unreliable tenant farmers, the Greenleaf Boys, sporting a wreath on his horns. Ending it with its heroine, Mrs. May, an analog for Regina, being gored to death by said bull. Nice. I'm going to gore my mom. Uh, It was published in the Kenry Review in summer of 1956 and gave her her first, first prize O. Henry Award. I didn't know the candy bar gave out awards. You were waiting waiting for me to make that joke. I haven't had an O. Henry in years. Oh, Henry, somebody on the list who we will cover at some point down the road, depending on how long this whole thing goes on for. Now, more good news came to Flannery and Betty Hester asking her to serve as her sponsor to convert to Roman Catholic to the Roman Catholic Church, even though the two still had not met in person. Betty claimed not to be ready to meet until she could share with her her big secret and her horrible past. I think Betty likes women. You do? Why? Like, what makes you think that? Because Betty has, you know, forever single, never been with a man. Well, neither's Flannery. But Flannery has tried, and I think Flannery's just too shy. Hmm. Well, Flannery started writing one-page reviews for The Bulletin, a bi-weekly paper published by the Diocese of Atlanta. It ran about 12 of her articles a year for the next eight years. The first of which was an anthology of Catholic short fiction in February of 1956, Flannery recommended Betty to its editor, and she was picked up to write her own 200-word reviews. Through Betty and the Bulletin, Flannery soon met William Sessions, a writer and instructor that also reviewed for the diocese. He would soon become somewhat of a little brother to the sisters Flannery and Betty, always being the beloved butt of the jokes. 
William would first visit Andalusia on Ascension Day in May 1956. And at the end of June, Betty finally agreed to visit as well. Flannery was taken back a little when they met. Betty had made it seem like she was ugly when she wasn't. Quote, I always take people at their word, and I was prepared for white hair, horn rim spectacles, nose of eagle, and shape of ginger beer bottle. Seek the truth and pursue it. You ain't even passably ugly. Now, after A Good Man was published, Flannery found herself the target of much attention, like uh, Jimmy Crumb that wanted an autographed picture for his wall of rare coin and stamp collection. Two theological students that saw her, saw her as their pinup girl, which she thought was just horrible. And Paul Curry Steele that sent her a story that she liked and helped him get into the writer's workshop, but they had to stop correspondence because he was becoming angry. He was mentally unstable, and he would start... There's there's a few... She actually makes friends with a person who escapes from a mental institution, and it, again, it doesn't have anything to do with the writing. It's, it's a neat story, but it doesn't have anything to do with it. these stories are long enough as it is um but yeah she makes friends with uh, some guy who escaped from a mental institution and they write back and forth to one another for a long time and said quote i seem to attract the lunatic fringe mainly is what she said and it's true she really does now not to mention all the people that live close enough just to stop by and visit which regina wasn't happy about but being sequestered to the farm flannery depended on these random visits for any type of social life. Now, the farm was now a full-fledged dairy farm, and Regina, always looking to make some extra money, began selling off timber rights. Watching her mother auction off woods on the land gave Flannery the idea for yet another story, a view of the woods. A tale of greedy Mr. Fortune and his nine-year-old granddaughter in love with the lawn and the view that her grandfather was willing to sell off to a future of houses and stores and parking places. It was written in September and published the next fall in Partisan Review. Now, Betty visited again in October, and after she left, she sent a letter telling Flannery that before the friendship could go any further, she needed to tell her about her, quote, history of horror. Her father had abandoned them when she was young, she watched her mother commit suicide when 13, and neighbors refused to call the police because they thought she was faking. Yeah. She was shipped off to Young Harris Academy, a Methodist school. She was an atheist then. Still technically is. But the big secret was when she was dishonorably discharged from the military for sexual indiscretions, having been intimately involved with Stephanie, you called it, Another woman. I'm very good at reading people. She offered to end their friendship as to prevent scandal from being visited on Flannery. Flannery responded, quote, I can't write you fast enough and tell you that it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference in my opinion of you, which is the same as it was, and that is based solidly on complete respect. I'm obscure enough. Nobody knows or cares who I see. If it created any tension in you that I don't understand, then use your own judgment. But understand that from my point of view, you are always wanted. Flannery did suggest that they not tell Regina as she, would, she wouldn't understand. Betty did have a crush on Flannery. Now, Flannery goes on a, a little bit more and says about how, well, you're not your history and... 
kind of puts it to Betty like, oh, well, you could change. And she does take offense to that, and it kind of breaks off the the friendship for a very short time. But they get everything cleared up. And uh, Flannery's like, I'm not telling you that you need to change. I'm just, you know, telling you that, you know, what happened in your past doesn't, you know, necessarily mean who you are now. Yeah, your past doesn't define you. Yeah, but Betty's saying, listen, I'm a lesbian. And Flannery's kind of like, eh, well, we'll see. So uh, it does it does put a, a kink in their relationship a little bit, but nothing t- to the point where they don't see each other anymore. Now, in the fall of 1956, GSCW brought on a new president, Robert E. Lee. Now, you get you get upset, but he was much more progressive than, you know, the original Robert E. Lee. Uh, for Christmas, he invited down his sister, Mary Attaway Lee, or Mariette, who would quickly become one of Flannery's best friends, lasting until the day she died. And again, like most people she gets close to, they were complete opposites. Marriott was almost six feet tall, long-faced, hazel eyes, walking the streets in pants, boots, a black overcoat, and a Russian lamb's wool hat. Quote, Marriott was the ultimate bohemian aunt who would show up wearing these outrageous clothes in the middle of the night, carrying a brown bag with cans of beer, which were illegal as it was a dry county. <laughs> Now, when Marriott came to Andalusia, Flannery did something she only did with very select few. She shared details of her illness and why she decided to move back in with her mother. Flannery gave her a few stories to take with her, including You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead, and Marriott loved them. It was the it was the beginning of a probably her, her best friendship uh, that she'll ever have. It's, it's one of those friendships, they're such good friends that they can continue to give each other shit because of how good of friends they are. They could say just the most horrible things to one another because they're such good friends. Yeah. Yeah. Your good friends are the ones who, when you leave, if you like go on a trip, your your good friends are the ones who say, hey man, be safe, can't wait to see you when you get home. Your best friend is the one who tells you, you're probably going to get gonorrhea from fucking prostitutes. Have a good time. That's just how it works. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for TheBeardStruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over The Beard Struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked felt or smelled better just ask my wife so go to thebeardstruggle.com all one word or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code audio15 at checkout for 15% off that's a-u-d-i-o-1-5 for 15% off your entire order go now and feast your face now on the evening of friday march 1st 1957 
people all over the country sat down, turned on CBS's Schlitz Playhouse of Stars, Schlitz Playhouse of Stars, to watch the half-hour teleplay of The Life You Save May Be Your Own, starring Janice Rule as the idiot daughter, Agnes Moorhead as the mother, and a small-time singer-dancer. You might have heard of him. He, he didn't do a bunch of very big things, but his name has been thrown around. Gene Kelly oh. as Tom Shiflett. Uh, with a revised ending, which Aunt Mary Klein felt was an improvement, Flannery watched it, quote, disliking it heartily. Yeah, I don't believe many artists or authors like their work to be... Well, except for the ones that fucking write screenplays and completely change their book. Yeah. On April 14th, she met Robert Fitzgerald at a Chicago airport, a visiting professor at Notre Dame for a semester. I like Notre Dame. I know you do. Uh, For a connecting flight to South Bend. Robert had invited her to speak for an audience of faculty and their wives, clergy, graduate students, and seminarians. This was how she was to spend much of her time for a few months reading and speaking more than writing. Now, until about October, when she was working on The Enduring Chill, which she, bought, which she brought Marriott into. The main inspiration for the male character, Asbury, a writer from New York who returns home to his mother's farm in the South after coming down with a serious illness. Now, yes, this da- does sound more like Flannery than Marriott, but Asbury was Marriott. Like her, he was a playwright, living in New York, in a New York tenement walk-up with a closet with a toilet in it, which Marriott had. His work in progress was a play about Negroes, which was a swipe at Marriott's performed in Harlem Harlem by an all-black cast. It's kind of an amalgamation of the two. She took a lot of her own experiences and what's going on in her life, but Like, well, if I was Marriott, and she was going through what I was going through, that would be this character. Yeah. Uh, Marriott was kind of insulted, but not super insulted, because she could see it right away. Now, by the spring of 58, Andalusia had become a destination for new and established authors, including James Dickey, the writer of Deliverance. Had a whole bunch of writers coming to see her, people that you knew, people that probably don't know but there's a lot of new writer there's a lot of new writers coming and going and and um going to she's seen as almost a guru for writers this person who's just saw things differently than everybody else so everybody kind of wanted to go meet mary flannery now in april and may they were planning a trip to lords in south of france mm-hmm. flannery was not particularly interested in going But apparently, Cousin Katie had heard of an organized package tour by the Diocese of Savannah to the site of Bernadette Subarus, the Saint of Lords, vision of the Virgin Mary in the south of France, and she immediately thought of Flannery. Now, the trip was jam-packed with stops in London, Dublin, Paris, Lords, Barcelona, Rome, and Lisbon, in 17 days. That's a lot of places to go in 17 days. Yeah, especially since you have to take boats to get to some of those places and she can barely walk. But in February, her doctor advised canceling the trip because her x-ray revealed hip deterioration and to Flannery's relief. (laughs) But 
But Katie would not have it, and she offered to pay for a less taxing trip to Lord's without the other stops. Sally Fitzgerald offered to put Flannery and Regina up at their house in Italy, and they could rejoin the trip after Paris. Three days before leaving, Flannery filed her last will and testament. <laughs> That's smart. Yeah. But she, uh, like, uh, I was like, well, you're Irish. Don't you want to go to um, you know, Dublin and, and do all the Irish stuff? And she, she's quoted as saying that she couldn't care less about the Baloney Castle. The Blarney <laughs> Or the Baloney Stone. The Baloney Stone. Blarney Stone. <laughs> because that's a that's a destination. She doesn't care about that shit. Now, Lords, Lords had become famous after the report in 1858 of the healing of the paralyzed fingers of Catherine Latape when she plunged them into the spring discovered by her friend Bernadette at the direction of the Virgin Mary. It was a popular spot for people to bathe in to cure all, the, all their various disabilities and uncomfortable parts. Flannery made it perfectly clear that she did not want to bathe in the water. Quote, I am one of those people who would die for his religion sooner than take a bath for it. But they knew that Katie would be upset if she sent Flannery all that way and she didn't even give it a shot. So she caved and around nine in the morning they showed up at the spring. This is gross. She had to wear a robe that was still damp from the woman that wore it before her. Oh, ew. Uh, it's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hot, it's a spring, but you, you're all getting in the same fucking nasty ass water. Yeah, but I mean, getting in the water is fine because you get in lake water that people piss and shit in. Yeah, but this is a spring. Springs are small. Yeah, I know. I get that. But sharing the road, that's the part that's most disgusting. Said she had no mystical experience and was sure that, the, that all that was displaced in this place was germs. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Now, Flannery was so exhausted by the time they got home on May 9th that she had to cancel speaking engagements. However, shortly after they returned, she got word from Dr. Merrill that her hip had unexpectedly began to calcify and she could now walk without crutches. Oh. Miracle? No. Probably not. Science. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, or it, magic. Or just the fact that she had kept weight off of it long enough for the bone to recalcify. And the fact that she wasn't getting cortisone shots anymore. Yeah. She was able to tell Katie the good news just shortly before Katie died at age 90. So so don't feel sad for Katie dying. She lived a a perfectly fine racist life. Uh, Flannery confessed about her time at the spring, quote, I prayed there for the novel I was working on, not for my bones, which I care about less. Priority, I suppose. Inspired by the waters of Lord and the much better contract from Robert Garreau at Farrar Strauss, Flannery returned to work on her second novel after the trip. She had the first hundred pages done in a month and thought she only needed 50 more. But she was beginning to think that maybe it would be more of a novella and it could possibly go with a larger collection of stories. She knew the title, though. The Violent Bear It Away, Matthew eleven twelve, Straight from the Bible. She loved to tell the story after it was published about a lady from Texas who wrote her that a friend of hers went into a bookstore looking for a good man is hard to find, and the clerk responded, quote, We don't have that one, but we have another one by the same author, the bear that ran away with it. 
the the story is about Mason Tarwater, an outspoken eva- evangelist and a self-ordained prophet, kidnaps his great-nephew Francis and raises him in the woods to prepare him to take his place someday. Tarwater dies, tells Francis to give him a Christian burial. Instead, Francis sets the cabin on fire with Tarwater in it and gets drunk. I mean, that's great. Does he go back to his family, though? Uh, no. So, he then goes and lives with, with his uncle, Raber. You remember Raber from The Barber? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, as always, she wrote it several times, saying to Catherine Carver, quote, When the Grim Reaper comes to get me, he'll have to give me a few extra hours to revise my last words. No end to this. <laughs> yeah. She didn't feel like she had done Raber um, enough justice in The Barber, because we talked about he was kind of seen of a joke. So she made him the good guy in this one. Kind of uh, to make amends, I suppose. Okay. Now, through much of 1958-1959, she was feeling well enough to keep doing public readings of her works and a few specific speeches she wrote for those occasions. I don't have a bunch of them in here because it's just you know, speeches. Uh, she finished the manuscript in the fall of 1959 and sent it off to her publishers. Flannery took advantage of a two-month lull before the novel's publication, telling Marriott, quote, This is the best stage, before it is published and begins to be misunderstood. She returned to story writing with The Comforts of Home, unusual in its casting of a widowed mother as a bleeding-heart liberal who takes her caricature of sex-starved, as she calls it, nympermaniacs, Star Drake, real name Sarah Ham. The story revolves around the widow's only son, Thomas, driven to matricide by the presence of the, quote, little slut. So again, the mother dies. Another ongoing theme. She must not like her mom. She loves her mother, but they don't get along all the time. And her mother loves her. It's just they're two different people. I love my stepmom. I know you do. Now, when Robbie McCulley succeeded, succeeded John Crow Ransom as editor of the Kenyon Review, which published the story a year later, did so with an inch-high illustration of naked Star Drake, sending Flannery into a rage. Quote, I was pretty disappointed and sick when I saw the illustration you stuck on my story. I don't know what you've gained by it, but you've lost a contributor. Yeah. It officially went on sale Friday 8th, 1960, dedicated to Edward O'Connor. Her dad? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Receiving mixed reviews from both critics and family. Marriott felt that Raber was the star of the book, and Flannery started addressing her in various iterations of Raber. Ray Butter, Ray Balm, Ray Fish, Ray Verberator. And Marriott started calling Flannery various versions of Tar Water. Tar Babe, Tar Soul, Tar Squawk. In July, nuns from Our Lady of Perpetual Help Free Cancer Home in Atlanta came to the farm to see if they could get her to help them with a book. The subject was Mary Ann Long, a 12-year-old girl with a cancerous tumor growing on one side of her face, whom they cared for until her death. Flannery gave an emphatic no but then she saw the photos. Quote, What interests me in it is simply the mystery, the agony that is given in strange ways to children. So she agreed to help edit a book and write the introduction. 
she would end up losing a bet to the nuns, wagering a pair of peacocks that they would never find a publisher for the book. Robert Gouro was swayed by Flannery's induction, in, introduction, and he published it in December. So, yeah. She, uh, she bets the nuns, I'll bet you two peacocks that nobody publishes this book. And then her publisher goes, I'll publish it. <laughs> it's a dick move. Kind of. It's a dick move for, to tell her that nobody would ever publish it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the remainder of the fall and winter were spent devoting herself to talks and essays and one magazine feature called The King of the Birds, the original title for the displaced person, an article on her peacocks that showed up in Holiday Magazine and paid $750. Not bad for, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. The beginning of 1961, she had begun work on a news story, the title of which was a popular phrase by a French Jesuit priest, scientist, paleontologist, theologian, philosopher, and teacher, Pierre Telhard de Chardin, of whom she was a big admirer. Everything that rises must converge. Which was, as she put it, a physical proposition that she found in Telhard that she was applying to a certain situation in the southern states and the world. This certain situation she was referring to was, of course, the civil rights movement. JFK had just been inaugurated. She was a supporter, obviously, of the first Roman Catholic president, saying, quote, I think King Kong would be better than Nixon. So finally, something her and our good friend Hunter S. Thompson would have in common. Probably the only thing but finally something they would have in common. She was a supporter of the movement for the most part, but since, again, what we had talked about earlier, I told you to, re to remember that point. Mm -hmm. Since coming home to Georgia, she had lived in a society predicated on segregation and had taken on its charged voices and manners as the setting of her stories. Friends were warned about bringing up the issue of race in the house with Regina, along with her uncle Louie, who once got so angry at a Thanksgiving dinner that he slammed down a copy of Life magazine just because it featured a picture of Richard Cardinal Cushing, the Archbishop of Boston, washing the feet of a black man. And a monk friend from the Trappist Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Connors, Georgia, said, quote, I would call Flannery a cultural racist. It wasn't that she didn't know they were children of God redeemed by the blood of Christ. Of course she knew that. But the vocabulary she was used to was typical Southern white. Her mother was worse. Flannery tempered it some. She did not hate black people, but she did resent the whiteies from the North coming down and telling us how to handle our problem with the blacks. Leonard Mayhew, then an Atlanta priest, said, quote, She never said anything racist but she was patronizing about blacks, treating them as children. O'Connor's position basically fell close to William Faulkner's. Segregation was an evil, but if integration were forced upon the South, he would resist. In one feverish moment, he even said that he would take up arms. In his personal life, his behavior towards African Americans was always cordial and kindly. But as one writer has characterized it, he was also patronizing because he belonged, after all, to a patronizing class. Yeah, so, like I said. It's just, again, when we get to the end of this, we're going to give our, our takes on how, what we feel. But we'll do that when we're all done. Because even if you're, you're just patronizing, you're still racist. Now, ironically, Flannery's biggest opponent in her racial standings was her good friend, Mary At Lee. 
In many of the letters they sent back and forth, Marriott came off as the northern liberal and Flannery the southern bigot. And Flannery would sometimes tell racial jokes with offensive punchlines, possibly just to shock Marriott. In April of 1959, Marriott ran into famed black author James Baldwin in New York, who was on his way to travel through Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia without a car. Marriott asked Flannery if she would like for James to come by the farm so they could meet, and Flannery gave a polite but firm, quote, No, I can't see James Baldwin in Georgia. It would cause the greatest trouble and disturbance and disunion. In New York, it would be nice to meet him. Here, it would not. I observe the traditions of the society I feed on. It's only fair. Might as well expect a mule to fly as me to see James Baldwin in Georgia. I have read one of his stories, and it was a good one. Now, this is odd that she would say all this because she had no problem letting Betty, who was a lesbian, come to her house. Yeah, but Betty had to hide the fact that she was a lesbian. Yeah, but even Betty said if this is going to be a thing, you know, if if this is going to cause some type of, uh, you know, big hoopla with you meeting with me and people, if people find out I'm a lesbian, then I won't do it. And she's like, well, no, people don't care what I do. You know, if, if you're a lesbian. But that was before she made a big. Uh, even after she made a big, she still had Betty coming down. Betty comes down a lot. And it's still, well, if people find out, nobody really cares who I am. I'm obscure enough. They won't They won't matter. But all of a sudden, now it's James Baldwin, and he's black. And now it's, oh, no, I can't meet. No, that wouldn't be right. That's kind of the, the hypocritical moment I see mm-hmm. there. And I believe the book that she's talking about that she read is Go Tell It on the Mountain. It had just been published not too long before that. <laughs> now, a story that Marriott told Flannery that ended up being a main part of Everything That Rises was when she was on a bus going through Milledgeville and a black woman in a purplish-red Easter hat sat beside her as a political act. Thinking the white Marriott would be either outraged or disgusted, but when Marriott offered to save her seat after the rest stop, she soon moved to the back of the bus. Wasn't going how she thought. Well, I'm going to sit next to this white woman. She's going to get all pissed off, and it's going to be a big political moment. Marriott's like, "Oh yeah, no, sit down. I'll, I'll save your seat for it. I don't, I don't care." And that's not what the the lady was looking for. Now, in everything that rises, a liberal college-educated Julian escorts his mother in her hideous hat with purple purple velvet flap to a weight loss class at the Y on a newly integrated bus. Julian sits next to a well-dressed black woman wearing the same hideous hat. Everything that rises must converge appeared in New World Writing in October 1961 and won the old O. Henry Award the next year. So that's her second O. Henry Award. By this time, she was starting to evolve her position on race, writing in 1963, the year before the Civil Acts right passed. Quote, I feel very good about those changes in the South that have been long overdue the whole racial picture, I think, is improved, I think it is improving by the minute, particularly in Georgia. I don't see how anybody could feel otherwise than good about that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, like most authors, not everything that they originally want to put in a story actually makes it in. Flannery was no different, and she still had some pieces that were left on the imaginary floor of her mind from the Violet Barrett away. She used these to write a new story called the lame shall enter first. Another stab at the triangle of liberal widower, 
his less-than-intelligent son and a tormented teenager. Back in 1953, she had told Robert Fitzgerald about a 14-year-old gangster named Rufus Florida Johnson that she pulled from Violent and remade him in Lame. The title, as most of her titles do, came from an experience, this time in a department store elevator. Six years earlier, when Flannery was just starting on her crutches, she had an encounter with a woman that felt the need to try and cheer Flannery up. Oh, this woman, she's on crutches. She must need me to come and make her feel better. One of those types of fucking people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She wrote to Betty that she, quote, grabbed my arm and whispered very loud in my ear, Remember what they said to John at the gate, darling. It was not my floor, but I got off, and I suppose the old lady was astounded by how quick I could get away on crutches. I have a one-legged friend, and I asked her what they said to John at the gate. She said she reckoned they said, The lame shall enter first. This may be because the lame will be able to knock everyone else aside with their crutches. The phrase aptly fit her character Rufus, Rufus with his monstrous club foot. Now, Carolyn was down at the farm and read the piece and was not impressed. She thought that maybe all the essay writing was affecting her storytelling. So, Flannery swore off talks, essays, and magazine articles, although she did do more speaking engagements later. When Holiday Magazine asked her to write another article for them, she told them no because it might activate her lupus. Because that's how it works. She got inspiration from the great space race going on, naming a character Shepard after Alan Shepard that buys Rufus a telescope so he can learn about space travel. And when Wild in the Country, starring Elvis Presley, came to Milledgeville, she got the idea to have Rufus shimmy down the hallway in a dead woman's corset singing Shake, Rattle, and Roll. (laughs) Wow. Now, by early summer 1961, her Lord's Miracle had worn off. Because that's what miracles do. They wear off over time. Right? Yes. Okay. And Flannery was looking into possible surgeries to help her with her hip problems. She was getting shots of cortisone again and Novocaine in both hips. But that only helped for a couple weeks. Her doctor, unfortunately nixed the idea of surgery, fearing the reactivation of her lupus. She finished Lame by the end of 1961 and sent it to Andrew Little, now the editor of the Swanee Review. Normally, she'd have sent it to the Kenyan Review, but after they posted that nude picture of one of her characters, she doesn't send anything to them anymore. Then she tried, unsuccessfully, to withdraw the story and its final proofs because she had decided that she didn't like it. It didn't work. It got published anyway. Now, in 1962, she wrote no new stories, but gave about a dozen public talks and readings. In May, she received an honorary Doctor of Letters at the Sister College of Notre Dame, St. Mary's. In June, she tried to start work on a third novel she intended on calling Why Do the Heathen Rage, wanting to turn the enduring chill into the first chapter, but she just couldn't get it going. Writer's block. Our old good friend. Yes. Yeah. In June of 1963, she was awarded yet another honorary doctorate at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, but deep down she was starting to wonder if she deserved it. She had had a 14-month dry patch of writing, and it was starting to ask a priest and nuns to pray for her because she wasn't sure she could do it anymore. Then, 
In early fall, the inspiration finally came in the waiting room of her doctor's office. It comes where it fucking comes. Muses are... It's like a porn star. comes where it comes. (laughs) Okay. Now, watching the country folks sitting and waiting, having small talk, Mrs. Ruby Turpin sprang from her imagination out of nowhere. She would be the main character in Revelation. While sitting in her doctor's office with her husband, Claude, who needed treatment for a leg ulcer caused by a kick from a cow, she started a conversation with a woman with a college-aged daughter named Mary Grace, who is reading Human Behavior. When the mother starts talking about how unappreciative Mary Grace is in the third person, so being very passive-aggressive about it, and the Turpins suggest a paddling is in order, Mary Grace flings the thick textbook at Ruby and lunges at her throat, screaming, Go back to the hell where you came from, you old warthog. Uh. Ruby is a white racist cunt, and she kind of deserves it. Uh, the inspiration for this came from a story Mariette told her about how she, in sixth grade, threw a book at a boy who ducked, and it hit the teacher whom she hated. Nice. Yeah. In the story, she gives Ruby a soliloquy of self self awareness. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? This obviously is inspired by Shakespeare, who she was reading at the time. Now she finished it in about eight weeks, and even though Esquire was willing to give her fifteen hundred dollars for it, it's a lot of money back then, she took less money so Andrew Little could run it in the Swanee Review. Always putting uh, friendship first. Christmas Eve, 1963, Flannery fainted. It's going to start getting sad. She was put to bed for the next 10 days, even missing Christmas Mass, which is something that she would never do. She had been getting more tired over the past couple months and had even been too weak to type. A week after the Kennedy assassination, she got new test results showing a lower-than-normal blood count. She had begun the long, slow, sometimes painful process of dying. Mm. So she focused on the one thing she could control, her writing. Mid-January, she got an electric typewriter, easy to, easier to use, and wrote to Garou about how she was planning one more collection of stories and that Revelation would round it out with about seven others. He wanted her to aim for fall, so she would need to get the manuscript finished by May. Near the end of February, she was told she needed a hysterectomy to remove a tumor which caused her anemia and fainting. The doctor wanted her to go to Atlanta, but she refused, choosing instead to stay in Milledgeville for the operation. So they loaded her with cortisone and hoped that the lupus wouldn't reactivate. She spent the night before the surgery in the hospital going over the galleys of Revelation, not liking it as much as she had before. The operation was a success, at least they thought, but two weeks later, she was back in bed. And by her 39th birthday, she knew that something was definitely wrong and that she probably didn't have much time left. The lupus had awakened. Back in the hospital in April for 10 days because of kidney infection, antibiotics weren't helping, and she began waking up with a lupus rash all over her body. On her return home, she dedicated herself to getting the book of stories finished before it was too late, but she wasn't allowed to type anything longer than a letter on doctor's orders. So, 
she got Elizabeth McKee, her agent, we haven't talked about it a little bit, to round up copies of her stories from magazines and put them in the book. Then she went through and decided which would make the cut. She was getting blood transfusions once a week. She would get a burst of energy, allowing her about an hour of work time before she was once again out for the count. The story she was working on now in that hour was Judgment Day, a retelling of the geranium. Oh. Circling back to her first successful story and redoing it to show how far she had come. So, she signed a contract for the collection, naming it Everything That Rises Must Converge. She was able to finish a good amount of writing while in the hospital and even coming up with another story called Parker's Back, inspired by the book Memoirs of a Tattooist. It's a story about O.E. Parker, a tattooed, covered young man, and his disapproving wife, Sarah, when he unveils the image of God on his back to his pregnant wife, she beats the tattoo bloody with a broom. Beats it bloody with a... Bleats the tattoo bloody with a broom. Now, we both have tattoos. You remember ever tapping on it accidentally and hitting the scabs or anything? Yeah. How much that fucking hurts? Can you imagine having a tattoo beaten bloody with a broom? A fresh tattoo? Ugh. Yeah. Now, while in the hospital, it was more tests and transfusions. She was down by 20 pounds and ended up staying for an entire month. Her hospital bill, not covered by insurance. Yeah. Luckily, I guess, the doctor told her that there was nothing more they could do for her in the hospital, and she was discharged. So, at least you don't have to pay any more hospital bills. Yeah. You can go die at home. Yeah. So, on the 21st of June, she was back home and ready to work. Ride an hour, rest an hour. Quote, I look like a bullfrog, but I can work. But in July, her kidney infection returned, and she was once again in the hospital with a low blood count. July 28th, she wrote her last letter to Marriott, beginning with Dear Raybat and ending with Cheers, Tarfunk. She never got to send it out. Regina found it on her desk a few weeks later and sent it to Marriott with a note, quote, Mary Flannery enjoyed your visits to her, and I'm so glad you came. The enclosed was on her table. She fell seriously ill again on August 2nd and was rushed to the hospital. As her kidneys began to fail, she received a Eucharist and was administered last rites. She slipped into a coma just before midnight and was pronounced dead August 3rd, 1964, at 12.48 a.m. at age 39. The funeral was held the next day on the 4th, the next day. I mean, quick. That is quick. At 11, at a packed Sacred Heart Church, Regina spoke privately with family, not about blaming God for her early death, but being grateful for their extra years together. She had lived much longer than expected. After the funeral, Mary was buried at Memorial Hill Cemetery, next to her adoring father. And that, listeners, was the life of Mary Flannery O'Connor. Aw, that's so sad. Now, uh, when Everything That Rises Must Converge was eventually published uh, April of 1965, the response to that, more powerful and uniform than any, anything Flannery, any of Flannery's other books, uh, playing into the fascination, of course, uh, the tragedy, no better publicity than death, you know. Uh, a simple white book that covered a carry, only an epitaph on the back from Thomas Merton, 
Quote, I write her name with honor for all the truth and all the craft with which she shows man's fall and dishonor. That's very sweet. Yeah. Now, let's get to the big question of the series. Was she racist? Yes. Okay, explain your answer. She, we are all a victim of circumstance and she was a victim of her environment. Okay. She was a racist. Okay. Now, here is where I kind of diverge from you. Because every, everybody's going to say whatever the fuck they say, and that's fine. Uh, I look at where and when she grew up, where and when she lived. She did a lot of stupid shit as far as race goes, said a lot of stupid things as far as the racial jokes and everything. But as far as being as progressive as she was in a place as racist as the as deep south georgia in the 40s 50s and 60s again i i i think that she's a product of of her environment a lot of people in that time were much more racist than she was and i think that if she were alive today i think if she had been born 50 years later i think she would have been completely different i think that she'd be much more left-leaning i think that she i don't think she would say the n-word probably would have never came from her mouth i think that she would be completely unracist if she was born and alive today you look back on it you go of course she was racist she was even racist against white people she was racist i'm racist i hate white people so okay let me get to i that. hate white republicans okay which is republicans in general there are black Republicans. I know. So I look, so, you know, you're going to look at it and go all the shit that she said and, and yeah, racist. But if you go back to the fifties, you look at her and you say, she's about as liberal as a Southerner is going to be right now. So I, I don't think it, and a lot of people are out there going, no, you're, you're the racist or you're not. And that's fine. But I just kind of see it as more of a, it's more of a complex question because, and more of a complex answer because it's, it's a different time. It's a different place. It's like. It's an easy answer. She was racist. However, she does have some redeeming qualities as she gets older and the fact that she is learning that segregation is bad and integration is good. And she even admits that. So those are her redeeming qualities because you can change you can learn yeah. from that behavior and better yourself but are you still a racist yes have i made racist remarks in my life yes i think everybody has at some point yes yeah. am i still a racist no but do i still have racist qualities probably yes because some shit is hard to change because my dad's a fucking racist yeah your parents are racists. Uh, my dad more than my mom for different things, but yeah. So, I mean, again, we are all products of our environment. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I, I think that at the, the time and place where she grew up, you're about as unracist as you can she, you can be without, you know, technically being not racist. The older she got, the more she evolved, I think if she would have lived, if she would have lived now, or if she even would have lived 10, 20, 30 more years, 
I think that all that racism probably would have washed away from her. I think she would have been completely different. That's why I think it's more of a difficult answer because she was much more racist when she was younger than she was when she got older. I think as she was an evolving racist. It was it was slowly seeping away from her. The I... more she learned, the more she talked to other people, and the more she had a world experience, I think the more unracist she, more of an intrigue she became. I have huge prejudice, prejudices against Catholics. I know you do. Yes. And I mean, that makes me a bad person. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't be prejudiced against anybody, uh, any group of people, just for that, unless they're... It's not because of their religion. I just know how much of a fucking hypocrite Catholicism... Well, some of them. Most of them. Not every, Almost every single fucking Catholic I've met, they're fucking hypocrites. And I can't stand Catholics because of the Catholics I have met throughout my life. Yeah, and that's that's a prejudice that you're you're basing... You're basing a an idea of a lo- very large group of people on a smaller group of people that you've met and that is that's stereotyping and that is a prejudice i know because there are plenty of catholics out there christians buddhists hindus protestants lutherans methodists baptists whatever you want to say there are plenty of them out there that are good genuine people but if you base everything on the little group of people that you've met then you're going to think that all of that group of people are horrible people. Unless, you're, unless your whole group's dynamic is spouting off hate. Like, well, the I, fact- like, like if, I, if I say, okay, you can't say that all Catholics are bad people because you met a few bad Catholics. But you could say that every member of the KKK, they're all bad people because that is the main tenet of what they believe. Then that's apt. But... They might leave good lives, though. But the individual. But you're a bad person because you belong to a hate group. The whole purpose of that they are a but hate. But all Catholics group. are against abortion. But that doesn't mean you're. Well, no, not all Catholics are against abortion. Even the Pope came out and said that he understands what most Protestants are against abortion, and not even all of them are. That's kind of a person-to-person thing. It's how all and how you the religion itself. It's in the Bible that abortion is wrong. No, it's not. It's actually the opposite. God actually tells. I can't remember what verse it is. I'll have to go find it. He actually gives instructions on how to abort abort a pregnancy if you're not sure whether or not the child is is yours. That you can make a concoction that the woman will drink that will cause a miscarriage which is that's what an abortion is yeah i know so actually god is perfectly fine with abortion. this whole this is getting into a religious uh, yeah, talk. Yeah, okay but so, no so, no no i gotta say I, this whole god every life is precious thing if you're a person that believes that god feels that every life is precious reread the fucking bible because he god does not give two shits about anybody's life it's just it's a, and that's not coming from an atheist standpoint. That's coming from the standpoint of somebody who's read the Bible and could see God doesn't give two flying fucks about your life. That's just the, that's all it is. That's just all there is. There's too many different interpretations of the Bible. No, there's a pretty good interpretation of if God is kill. God kills many people in the Bible. If he gave a shit about people's lives, he would not do that. It's that simple. God is the biggest mass murderer of all time. And that's why the Jewish people have it right. 
Oh, I'm just, I'm just sure. Okay. I, I love the Jews. I do. I do. Okay, sure. I, I want to be a Jew. I do. Why? You, you can convert, but that's a lot of work. Why? Would, why? I've always said I wanted to be an Asian Jew. I'm good at math and I hate pork. Okay. Give our socials out before you get us in more trouble. <laughs> you didn't get the joke. I got the joke. But you didn't laugh. I'm throwing it back to you. Give out our socials. Okay. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at openafingbook. I am at ECJBAT. And he is on Twitter at youngetam6. And he is at on Instagram at youngetam. That. Yes. Yeah. I spend most of my time on, on opens, both of them. So if you want to get a hold of me, more likely just use opens. And yeah, he doesn't use his own. I, know, I barely use my own. Uh, email us, openafingbook at gmail.com. If there's any authors you want us to cover, any books you want us to cover, our next series will be, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Goodreads, Stephanie? Goodreads.com slash openafingbook and goodreads.com slash ECJBAT, which is mine. That's in the show notes if you want to follow along while Stephanie reads, like a little bouncing ball. I haven't. I've only put one book up there. I know, but you're you're even sick, and yeah, I you'll know. get you'll eventually get around to it. Uh, go to our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/OpenAFingBook. Uh, plenty of stickers still. If you'd like one, all your donations go to make this show even better. Come back middle of the week for our Cliff Notes episodes, where we talk about four books of the week or however many Stephanie brings to the table that she wants to buy. It will be February, yep, so it will be fingers crossed. Yeah. And uh, cover some some book news. Rate, review us wherever you listen. Follow, subscribe. It really helps us out. Go to your local library, volunteer if you can. Go to your local bookstore, buy a book from an independent local author. At an independent local bookstore, it's the best thing you can do to help them out right now. You can buy their book from wherever you want, but helping out the bookstores is just as important as helping out the authors right now. Uh, look down at our show notes. You can get Stephanie's uh, Goodreads. We have some other things down there you can look at. Come back um, next week, our next series. I know we're getting into it a week late. Um, didn't record last week because of illness. So we're getting into Black History Month uh, a week late with who we're covering. It's going to be uh, one of the most influential black authors of all time. Somebody we've talked about who has came up twice in past episodes. And... Uh, would be upset if he heard that I said he was one of the best black American authors of all time and not just one of the best authors of all time. So those are the only hitch, hints you're getting, if you can figure it out from there. Go ahead. And I think that is it. I think that is it as well. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go eat some fucking tamales. Ooh, we're going to eat some tamales. Bye. Go for the fuck Bye, guys.